You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. It was Nicodemus, and uh, we, we realized he went to Jesus, asked some questions, and Jesus was very uh, blunt with him. He said, you must be born again. Uh, that, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus, and Nicodemus struggled with that a little bit. But we learned that moving forward, as we looked in Nicodemus' story, that um, he chose Jesus. He chose to place his trust and faith in Christ. And then we met a, a second young man. He's the rich young ruler, and he struggled because he came to Jesus with that same question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments, right? this guy said, hey, I have been adequate in that. My, my faith has been authenticated by what I've done. And then Jesus said, well, what about you just take what you have and give it away to the poor and come follow me? And at that, the young man turned around, saddened and, and departed from Jesus. And it says that Jesus loved him, but he couldn't make up his mind for him. And the question last week was, how, which, which of those two guys do you identify with? Do you identify with somebody who is struggling with understanding who their faith is? Do you identify with somebody who has a hard time giving all and following Jesus? Because that's really what we're asked to do, is to give up us in light of who Jesus is. To surrender all that we are. And so we're going to be in chapter, Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We are uh, starting a series that there are a lot of churches doing it um, across Southern Baptist life called Who's Your One? And we're going to do a version of it. It's something that uh, J.D. Greer put together with Johnny Hunt and um, some other folks. And so we're going to walk through that. And, and the reason we're going to do that is because as we begin the new school year, it's kind of a fresh start for everything, isn't it? I mean, when you start school, schedules change, um, the way you do life changes, the time you go to bed changes, um, you, you have to start making lunches at different times. I mean, there's a lot of things that change. And so as we go through this, it's just going to be um, the idea that maybe we need to change something that we're doing in light of the world that's around us or the culture around us. And so we're going to do this series on Who's Your One, and we're going to talk about identifying somebody that we can share Christ with, that we can invite to, into a relationship with Jesus Christ, because that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, you can invite, just kind of like we, we heard Sam sing in that song, you can invite somebody to come along, knowing that it means taking up your cross and following and they may or they may not respond, but our responsibility is just to invite. Our responsibility is to take the gospel and say, hey, here is where life is. Would you like to accept Christ? Would you like to become a follower of Jesus? And so that's what we're going to look at. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, and I want to start with the idea of a, of a mental image, um, maybe something that you thought of. So, so I'm going to mention some words, and, 
And I kind of want to know, and this is where you get to, to talk back a little bit. Um, I want to know what you think of first when you hear this. Now, understand that when I say some of these things, um, you may declare something different than the person next to you. And so don't think bad about the person next to you if they don't agree with you. Got it? All right. All right, so let's try this. So what image pops into your mind when I say politician? Oh, there's just a ooh, right? <laughs> ooh. Okay, so, so did an image come to mind when I said politician? All right, well, well, maybe we just leave that one alone. All right, barbecue. Okay, so, so the image was good. And I don't know what that means if an image is good, um, but, it, but it tastes good, right? So you came up with an image. Maybe it was of a grill. Maybe it was a, a, a steak on a platter about this big. And you said, pardon? Not big enough. Well, maybe not for Mike. Okay, all right. Um, how about the word terrorist? Okay. So we're, we're kind of all over the board on this thing. Um, Hillsborough. <laughs> Y'all's reactions are funny. All right, Texas. Cows. And now we're back to steak again, right? All right. How about football fan? We're, we're almost there. Crazy? A little bit crazy? All right. Yeah, all kinds of different ideas there because everybody has their own team. And so we may relate. I want to show you a picture of three guys that are fans of the Chicago Bears. Okay? So uh, you may not like them. It's okay. Just look at these three guys. So check out this picture. Now, I know you don't recognize these three guys, but I do. I, I know all three of them, and um, the guy on the left, on the, the far left with the, with the um, orange and white dreadlocks, um, he was actually a youth minister that I served with some time back. And those are his two sons. Now, I want to show you another picture, and I want to show you because these guys are diehard Chicago fans. See the next one. Check it out. This is on the side of Soldier Field. Bill and his son were, were painted on the side of the wall of Soldier Field as fans. And so um, Bill and his family actually had season passes to the Chicago Bears draft day because of this. Um, they were just lifted up and, and actually ended up on ESPN um, as fans of the month one, one time. Um, Bill, who is wearing the number 51 shirt there, um, Bill has since passed away. He was a pastor um, back in Kentucky and has passed away, but his sons carry on the tradition. And I've seen some recent pictures of both Billy and Jeff in that garb going to Chicago Bears game. And so we have different versions of, of what it may look like to be a fan. And so what makes a fan? I, I looked up, because we were looking up the date for the Super Bowl, I looked that up, and I looked up some, saw some prices. I, I just want to know, is anybody a fan that much of any game? Here are the prices. For a ticket, starting at 
just a ticket, no hotel, no travel. It's in Miami um, in February. Just a ticket, it's $5,000. That's where they start. So, um, you ready? Road trip, right? All right. Um, now, if you want the hotel, if you want to stay at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami, it's, uh, it starts at $12,200. That's hotel and ticket. Anybody ready to go? You realize that game's three, well, four hours long because of the commercials and the halftime show. And you've got to get there. There's some pregame things. But that's a lot of money, isn't it? And to say, man, I'm committed to being a fan is a major statement. So if you're committed to be a fan to go to that game, you've got to fork out a lot of money to even show up and watch it. And I'm guessing the $5,000 seats are the ones where you need to take binoculars with you as well. It's just, it's just kind of crazy. But I, although I may be a fan of football, I'm not a fan to the point where I'm going to mortgage my house to do it. It's just, it just doesn't work like that. But when we talk about being a Christian, what image comes to mind? You think about being a Christian, what image comes to mind? There's probably lots of things that, that may come to your mind. I want you to watch this video um, because they're going to talk about Jesus and talk about what they think of Christians. Watch this. Wow. Are you shocked by any of the answers? Instead of the punk rock. Yeah. 
I'm not sure where that came from. Um, and maybe it's, I need to go do some research on what it means to be a punk rocker to, to see how Jesus fits into that. But yeah, there's, there's some shocking statements in there, aren't there? And so for those of us that call ourselves Christians, we would look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute. Not all of those things would I identify with. There are probably a few that you'd say, well, that's accurate. But there's some other ones that you'd say, oh, no, I really never thought of myself as crazy. Maybe a little rigid, but not crazy. And so there's all kinds of different definitions. And you may call yourself a Christian, and it may be you call yourself a Christian because at some point you prayed a prayer, you came down forward in church, you filled out a form, maybe you were even baptized, and that kind of gave you the right to call yourself that. But there are folks that call themselves Christians all over the place that may have never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's really not about the term, is it? In fact, it, it, we'd almost be better, and I'm not suggesting we do this, but it'd almost be better to take the term out of play because the definition is so broad, or at least the application of the definition is so broad. In fact, in the New Testament, the word Christian only shows up three times. It's used in Acts chapter 11 at the church at Antioch, and it describes people that follow Jesus. And so it's a term, and it was actually a derogatory term. And so if we look at that, we say, well, I don't know. To be called a Christian in that sense was bad, but when you talk about following Jesus, that's good. But the culture looks at it different, and we saw in this video, the culture looks at Christians by that definition and says, I don't see all good in those that follow Jesus, although you heard much better stuff about who Jesus was. So there seems to be a disconnect between this definition of who Jesus is and the definition of Christian. They don't seem to match up real well. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. In fact, the, the term that's used more often in Scripture to describe somebody who is a follower of Christ is a disciple. Around 280 times in the New Testament, the word disciple or disciples is used to describe people that follow Jesus. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at what that, what that means and what that looks like. So if you look at Matthew chapter 4, we'll read this passage, and then we'll come back and learn several things about this. Matthew chapter 4, we'll start at verse 12. So, it says, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, talking about John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee, back into the northern section of Israel. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of sea, way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. And you learned several weeks ago, as Isaiah, Pastor Isaiah was sharing, he talked about this phrase where 
John had been taken into custody, and Jesus takes over those words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the Jewish folks were looking for something that was called light, and they were looking for light to enter. So it's not unusual that we'd see that referenced here in the book of Matthew. And then in verse 18, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting, net, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, we thank you this morning as we read this encounter that Jesus has with these guys on the, at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Father, as you've called them out to, to be different, Father, you do the same with us. And so, Father, teach us this morning. Help us by your Spirit to understand what your Word calls us to do as disciples. And so, God, we pray that, not for our own credit or even to make the crowd in this room bigger, but, God, that your kingdom would grow and that you would be glorified. And, Father, we thank you again for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so when we read, when we read this in chapter 4, when we read about the area called Galilee, understand that in Jewish life, the, the area around Galilee was, was just full of those that were very religious. Um, it was kind of a, an elite area for religious thought and religious belief. And so as Jesus is going around, he's running across fishermen and, and other folks, but they would be very aware of what was written in the Old Testament. They had studied. In fact, most, most of the time, Hebrew boys or all Hebrew boys went to study starting at the age of five. And they would study the Torah, and by age 10, they knew the Torah, and the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. And so they were all about being studious. Um, the rest returned home to work in their family business. So the elite kind of jumped to that next level. And so by age 17, if you wanted to go on and make a career out of being in the religious sect or a Pharisee, then you would move away from home and go study under some famous rabbi like Hillel or Gamaliel. You would do that and you would move out and go to follow one of them. And the idea is that you would learn so much that you would begin to imitate them, both in their style, what they've learned, and how they interpret Scripture. So it was pretty intense. It's much more intense than the discipleship programs that we have. I mentioned last week that there was a question about um, whether Deb had memorized this, the whole Bible. She'd been a, a believer for 30 years. Had she memorized the Bible? Have you memorized the Bible? Just checking. She didn't tell me she had, so I figured she hadn't. But, but these guys would memorize large portions of Scripture. It became, became second nature for them. 
And so the most talented of them sought after a famous rabbi to follow. And they would interview, and that rabbi would say and question them and begin to interrogate them about what their beliefs were and, and what they wanted to do. And, and the end result was you could either follow or not. And so you'd be able to identify what, what the disciple who he was following by what he said because he was so attached to the rabbi. And so when Jesus comes along, well, what we understand is this, this is just like a major draft, except for it's flipped. These guys are not seeking out Jesus. When we get to Matthew chapter 4, Peter and Andrew and John and James are doing what they've always done. They're fishing. They've gone back to what their dad did. And so they're casting a net, mending a net, being fishermen along the Sea of Galilee. And so what we read here is we read of Jesus doing something that is a little bit of the flip of what the normal case was. These guys were not seeking out. And, and we have to understand who Jesus was. In, in chapter 7, it says, in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, so we get an, an idea of what Jesus was doing does when he teaches it says when jesus had finished these words he had taught the crowds the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority not as their scribes so what we see here in matthew chapter 7 is this idea of who jesus is as a rabbi see jesus had risen to the point where he was understood to be an authority. The only way you get there is to study under somebody of authority and then become so like them that you have the authority to teach Scripture and interpret it. And so when Jesus teaches, and it's all the, all the more reason we understand that the Pharisees would question that, they ask him, who brought you to this place? Who do you study under? By whose authority do you share? So there was always the question of authority. And so when Jesus asked these guys to follow, he's asking them to come and be like him. He's not asking them to come just get dusty behind him and have their own ideas. He's asking them to come be like him. Follow. Be my disciple. Hang out in my dust, but learn to do things exactly the way that I do them. Jesus oozed authority because his authority came from the Father. In this passage, what we read, we read about five things. And so we go through them very quickly. The first one is that Jesus, in this passage, chooses the willing. He chooses the willing. Look at now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Get on board. Come with me. Give up everything that you are and come. And they were fishermen. They had to give up everything. To be a follower of Jesus, to to be examined as a disciple of Jesus meant that they were going to have to give up the nets, give up the boat, even give up relationships to follow. And it was all based on availability. See, why would Jesus choose guys like this? 
You know, if, if you or I walked into the draft room of the Chicago Bears, what would we be looking for? Well, if you're not a Bears fan, you'd look for the absolute worst player in the draft to choose, right? But if you are a Bears fan, you walk in to find the best possible player that you can choose that would enhance your team. Coming alongside the Sea of Galilee and choosing these guys was not the best option. These guys were fishermen. There was nothing special about them. They may have been somewhat educated, but not educated to the point that, of what Jesus was going to ask them to do. They weren't rich. They weren't social, socially accepted. They were just guys, ordinary guys. So why would God choose the ordinary? God chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary so that God will be glorified. That's the bottom line. And so if we're looking, say, I've got to be something special to follow Jesus. Jesus wouldn't want me. There's nothing special about me that he should choose me to be his follower. And I want to say, there is really nothing special about us. God chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary because it brings glory to God. He was choosing men that would have to lean on Jesus, would have to lean on God to accomplish what God wanted to do with them. And our job is to lean on Jesus. There was a, a young man, his name was Blake. Um, I've seen Blake recently, um, about a month and a half, two months ago. And, uh, and Blake was one of these guys that came from a really, really, really messed up home. Um, if you looked at it from the outside, you'd say, oh, there's nothing too crazy about that. But if you know the, the inward workings of that home, you'd understand that there were some strange connections. And, and, I, and I could go into details, but I won't. But, but Blake was at a point when he was in middle school, we took him on a mission trip. And it got so bad that we had to take him out of the room because he was acting out in a really crazy way, um, in a non-human way. We had to take him out of the room, place him in the hallway so that the rest of the guys could sleep. We placed him there and we said, I don't know how long you're going to be out here. Somebody will be with you. You start at Genesis 1-1 and you keep reading. We just wanted him to focus. Fast forward three years. Um, Blake comes on another mission trip. It's in the Orlando area. And he's done pretty well. Everything has calmed down in his family, although it's still a mess. But, but we're on the roof doing some roofing and, and doing some work around this house. And, and somebody said, hey, where's Blake? And nobody could answer the question, where's Blake? So, so we begin this search for Blake in this neighborhood in Orlando. And as we found Blake, we found him down the street, probably a quarter mile, and he's down there witnessing some people that happened to be in the neighborhood. See, Blake moved from being in a mess of a situation being called by God and being willing and used by God to being the, the kid that was the youth ministry evangelist, if you will. He understood what it meant for change to take place. And so when God called him, 
The question was, Blake, are you willing? And then Blake answered and said, yes, I am. And it changed Blake's world. As an upperclassman, he was a leader. And he is still a follower of Christ. Recently married, he talked, he talked with me about what it means to follow Christ and, and what he does for a living and how he gets to live that out. Does Blake still have some issues? Absolutely. Do you and I still have some issues? Sure. But Blake was willing. And so God chooses the willing. The second thing, God chooses us, not us choosing Him. Look at this in verse 19. It says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he said the same thing to James and John. Just come. God chooses us, we don't choose Him. Some in here are having difficulty as parents, having difficulty maybe with jobs, difficulty in relationships. And maybe it's, it's the point where we say, okay, if God is really in charge, then I've got to give up. If I'm going to be a disciple, it means that I've got to give up me and allow God to do this. If I understand that God is in charge of my life, then even where I'm struggling, I can lean into God. You understand, when Jesus called these guys from the boats, He asked them to come follow and not bring the boat or the nets with Him or with them. They were just to travel and trust Him. So He chose them. He chose them even if they would not have chosen Jesus. He chose them to step out into a space that may have been very uncomfortable for them. So Jesus chooses us, not us choosing Him. In John 15, 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give you. God chooses us. Third thing, we are called to be with Him. Look what it says, follow me and I will. And so the the idea is that we follow Jesus and we may not know what that looks like. You remember a day, those of you that are a little older remember, that when you were called to be a missionary, it meant that you had to go buy a leisure suit. And you had to operate a slide projector. And we don't even know what slide projectors are anymore. But you had to operate a slide projector so that when you came back to your church, you could show slides for an hour and a half, bore everybody with the pictures. This is, you know, and just go through those slides. And you go, yay, you're a missionary. Obviously, because you can wear a leisure suit and operate a slideshow. Jesus calls us to be with him not to do something for Him to earn His favor. He calls us us just to come along where He is at work. These guys had fishing on the mind when they were out there. And so what does someone who is willing to follow Jesus, what do they do? In our context, we'd say, well, they've got to walk with Him. That's the first thing. So these disciples had to walk away from nets and boats and parents and relationships. They had to walk away from a career, and they had to walk away from relationships to follow Jesus. 
meant they had to give up something. And so, although Jesus' terminology seems to be pretty vague, come follow me, it meant that they would be with him. They would walk with him. They would study under him, and they would begin to imitate him. And it was all related to time. Jesus called these guys to spend time with him. And so if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, how do we do that? How do we become a disciple? Well, we've got to do the same things, right? We've got to identify the things that that need to be cut out of our life, and we have to say, yeah, I'm all in. We talked about all that last week. And, And if we're going to grow, we've got to be in those environments that will help us to grow. To be in a small group. To be in that place where we can kind of measure whether we're maturing in Christ or not. You see, it's easy to come in here and fool everybody in the room about spiritual maturity. Because you can come in here, you can mouth some words during when we sing, and you can sit there and you can close your eyes when we say, hey, would you pray? And everybody thinks that you're spiritually mature. When you get in a small room, understand that everybody in the room, everybody in that small group struggles. And it is a journey that is taken together in a small group that makes the difference. Jesus didn't say, hey, come follow me. You stay with your nets. I'll see you in about a week. We'll get together in a week. And then after that's over, you can go back to your nets and come back in a week. He just said, come follow me. Come get on board. Come get in my dust and let's move forward. It was a complete surrender of their life and everything about their life. And so how do we do it? We find those opportunities to learn. We're present for worship where we can corporately get together. We find places to serve and to be active in living out what Jesus called us to do as servants, as humble leaders, even within our community. On August 21st, which is what? How long away? Two weeks or a week and a half, right? Um, That night... Kid Impact Projects, which is what we do with our kids, they're going to be traveling down to Cameron Park Elementary. And the idea down there is we're going to pull weeds and spread mulch because they have an open house the next night. And so we're going to get together, and the kids and their parents and siblings are all going to get down there on that Wednesday night. And I want to encourage you to come and do it as well. Um, You can never have too many people spread mulch. But if you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't do mulch. I don't even pull weeds. If you don't do that, the other thing that we're going to do is we are going to prayer walk that campus. And so I would encourage you to be part of that. That is a way to plug in with a small group of people serving the Lord together. And so August 21st, just mark it on your calendar. We will meet down there if you want to come straight there at 640. If you want to meet here, be here at 25 after 6, and we'll grab some vans and head on down. But it's a way for us to impact our community, and we're not the only ones that are doing something like that. So don't think, hey, well, what about all the rest of the schools? It's okay. We're starting somewhere. So I would encourage you to be part of that on August 21st. See, what, what these guys got to do is they got to experience life the way Jesus saw life. So the fourth thing, 
Following him means leaving all. In verse 20, it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left all that they knew. When we follow follow Jesus, it means that he takes first place. Somewhere in here, you may be asked to leave a career. I didn't start out wanting to do this. In fact, one of my greatest fears as a, as a middle school and high school student, and even when I got to my first year of college, was public speaking. I didn't like it. I mean, I, I really kind of had to tr- double and triple up on the deodorant for doing that. And I never thought I'd be here. What my, the idea that I wanted to do was I was going to work in electronics, which meant I got to work alone with a computer that didn't talk back. And I would make lots of money because somebody called me at 3 in the morning when their stuff was broke. And that was going to be my, that was my career choice. I've got a Bachelor of Science in something way different than theology. My Bachelor of Science is in electronics engineering technology, which at this point means nothing. But I've got that degree. And God called me out of that. And it meant a career choice, a career change for me. I've got a friend that I talk to on a regular basis that he had the same thing happen. He worked in student ministry for several years and did teaching and he worked sound. He did all kinds of different things. And God called him to ministry and he started pursuing a different career. Understand, this guy had a career. He was already in the marketplace as a lawyer. And God called him to be a pastor. And he's been doing that for several years. He's not, he's not a slouch. It's not because he couldn't do it, because he's got two PhDs. The guy's really smart. And his wife's pretty smart, too. And if he wanted to talk three feet over my head, he would have no problem. God brought a career change to him because, because he was willing and Jesus had called. So God may change our careers. He may ask us to leave family. He may ask us to move into spaces that are unfamiliar. Now, Tim and Laura Brown went back to some place that Tim was familiar with, but it meant that they left family to go to Africa. And you think that's, that's difficult. Because it means that they took also the grandkids with them, which makes who unhappy? grandparents that's a hard choice that's a really hard choice and yet God was calling them to do that so following him means leaving all and it may not be that dramatic for you it may not be a career choice it may not be a move overseas where you leave family and all that but God is calling you to something and it always means giving up everything When God calls us, He asks us to leave it all behind and to follow Him and do what He asks us to do. The fifth thing is He commands us to spiritually reproduce. Look what it says. It's right here. Verse 19, And He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I don't know know about you, but that, that is... A strange term to me. 
When I look at it, I say, oh, fishers of men. Being a fisherman is pretty easy to understand. For these guys, it was cast a net, collect fish, bring them in the boat, and move on. It meant income. It meant, it, it meant lifestyle. But what does it mean to be a fisher of men? Does it mean that they'll cast a net and draw these guys in against their will? I don't know that it's that. But when Jesus makes this statement, it had to be a little bit strange. I will make you fishers of men. What does it mean to be fishers of men? Well, essentially what what Jesus was asking them to do is to come follow Him and He would teach them to be just like Himself where they would be disciples of His and be at a place where they were imitating Him so that they could express what it meant to follow Jesus as well. And they would teach people how to be disciples. So we have a responsibility to reproduce spiritually. To be spiritually reproducing who Jesus is. In other words, make disciples. In John 15, 8, it says, It says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So what does it mean to prove to be a disciple? We look at that word prove, we would say, well, that could be interpreted to show that you are my disciple by bearing fruit. Uh, the, other, the other way that's looked at in this passage, the other way it reads in the Greek is to be divided or to separate one from the other. Can I tell a follower of Jesus from a non-follower of Jesus? If I were to take the definitions of Christian that we heard in the video, could I take the definition some of those definitions and apply it to Christians and some not to Christians? Like if that view of Christian is they're crazy, if that's, the, if that's the definition, can I separate that out and say maybe those that are considered crazy are not really Christian? It's possible. But what Jesus lays out for here is the question of whether we are a disciple. And can we show evidence that if somebody were to put a dividing line there, would we fall on the side of being a Jesus follower, being a disciple? We could even ask the question, if we are not reproducing spiritually, are we a disciple? I know that may sound harsh, but if we're called to be like Jesus, we probably ought to be doing that. And so when Jesus says, come follow me and ask us to be a disciple, it means that we have the responsibility to do exactly what he's doing. To reproduce. What did Jesus come to do? Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's our job. We've been called. He's chosen us. He's asked us to leave all of it behind, realizing that it's going to be a, there's going to be a cost involved. And he asks us to share with others what it means to follow Christ. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman wrote this. When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, 
will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers to do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. You see, if we call ourselves a disciple, a follower of Jesus, we are the method that God has chosen to share with the world a relationship with Christ. We are. And so I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things this morning. Some of you are identifying as Christians this morning, but when we put it in terms like this of leaving all and following Him and taking on the character and and the, the, just the essence of who Jesus is, you say, I prayed a prayer, and I got baptized. But that really doesn't describe me. And today may be the day that you need to nail down whether you are a disciple or not. You may question that. And I'm not trying to question your, your salvation. But it's one of those things where when we look at ourselves, are we doing what God has called us to do? Is it a point of evaluation for our lives? And so I want, you, I want to ask you to evaluate that. Because Jesus was more than just a good teacher. He was more than someone who just went and healed the broken and fed the hungry and, and commanded nature. He actually spoke life into death. He raised people from the dead. And following Him, when we trust Him as our Savior, He takes us from being dead spiritually to live spiritually. And life affects life. So our life ought to affect those around us. And so you may call yourself a follower of Christ or a Christian and really need to consider that and decide, are you following Jesus the way He asks you to? Some of you know, say, yeah, I know that I'm a Christian, and I've not been doing that well, and I need to recommit my life. There's no question about my salvation, because at one time I was spiritually reproducing. At one time I was sharing my faith. I was close to Jesus. We were, we were right there, and I was spending time with Him. I was involved, I was serving, I was doing all those things that would prove that I was a disciple, but I've fallen away from that. And it may mean that the altar is your place of refuge this morning. It's where you come and say, I've drifted from that and I need to be rekindled in my life with Christ. I need to be lit, lit again, fired up again about who I am in Christ. So with all the freshness that comes with starting school and new commitments, do either one of those affect your life? And then the third thing I want, to, I want you to consider is choosing one person that you would be willing to share Christ with. Say, God, there's, a, there's somebody that I'm around on a regular basis. And I don't know if they know Jesus or not, but I want, I want you to give me the burden and give me the opportunity to share Christ with them. That's the idea of who's your one. 
is that every single person in here would have one person that they would share Christ with. In essence, beginning that, that process of multiplying or spiritually reproducing who you are in Christ. Would you be willing to take on that commitment? To say, I will choose somebody. Uh, here's, here's the way to look at it. If everybody in this room were to do that, to choose one and share with that person, whether they all would come to Christ and, and become a follower of Christ and, and kind of get in the dust of Jesus is one thing. But what would it just do if 50% of the folks that we shared with over the next year or six months came to Christ and, and became part of a vibrant fellowship that spiritually reproduces? What would that look like? See, we start with one. We could say there are masses of people that need to know Jesus. But right now, Who's the one that you're responsible for? Who's the one that God is calling you to talk to? Let's see what God does with that as we are faithful. Amanda, can we show that video that reminds us of how many there are, but what it means for us to pick one? Next week, we'll give you a bookmark with a prayer guide for the next 30 days. And we're going to be praying through this, the idea that we've got one person that we're responsible for that we will share Christ with. And we'll see what God does with that as we continue studying um, in this sermon series called Who's Your One? And so I would ask that you would consider, that you would pray, that you would identify, then you'd pray, and then you'd act, and then you would pray that God would do something amazing, that it would have its impact on Ebenezer, but it would have its impact on Hillsborough, that it would have its impact on Durham and the Triangle. So will you join me in that? Next week we'll have a chance to express that as we pledge those cards that say, here's my one, and I'm going to be praying that they be reached for Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.